Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser, so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. I am George Knapp, listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone, and welcome back to that UFO podcast. My name is Andy, and I'm joined with me for a special show by Dan. How are we? I'm great, thank you very much. I'm excited to speak to our guest today. For several reasons, of which we'll get into to yeah. many of those as we go on. Happy New Year. It's 3rd of January or onwards. Uh, I hope it's been a good one for you as well. Joining us on the podcast today, very excited to finally speak to someone I've been messaging for quite a while back and forwards. We have a fellow Scotsman, Scottish explorer, filmmaker, television presenter and author, Ashley Kiwi. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Andy. Good to see you, Dan. I was on mute. I'll give you that one. That's my first of the year. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it already. It's so ready. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's always nice to have Dan on for the interviews as well. And um, we'll get to later on one of the reasons why Dan is on this one. But uh, as much as he wanted to speak to Ash as well, um, but there's a reason for it for the listeners too that we'll get into. Listen, Ash, uh, like I say, I've been talking to you for a while. You've not done too many of these interviews yet either. I think this is maybe your, your second or third. I know you were on with Vinny from Disclosure Team last week. Indeed, Vinny was my first one, and you represent my last one, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. So I should say um, um, most of the people that you interview are what you would call thorough lifelong members of the UFO community. Well, this is all quite new to me. However, I should be honest with you. I, I was on Ancient Aliens four years ago in a sort of historical role. You know, I did an episode there, so... 
I am familiar with the whole thing. However, um, yeah, this is my first and or my second interview. We're going to cover, as you say, a few things, and we're going to end up talking more about why Dan might be interested in speaking to me. But what I'm not doing is selling a book. I'm not doing is um, selling a new UFO Havana theory. I'm here to answer some questions. Absolutely, and you're you're very uniquely positioned to do that because as as much as you've got that lovely Scottish accent that people can understand, no doubt, far better than my own, and it's going to keep mine in check for this episode. Um, you're based out in Colombia uh, in South America, so let me ask first off, Ash, how did you, a Scotsman, end up out in Colombia? Uh, it's just pretty obvious, isn't it? It wasn't because the weather; it was a girl. <laughs> as uh, um, as is the same I, for many of us, yeah, when we move. I, I, Indeed, I met. I was living in London, Andy, about six years ago. I'd just been for five years in London. I met a Colombian girl when I was in Barcelona. And I moved out of London, moved over to Colombia, and turned my life upside down on the worst end of forty. And it, you know, I'll be really honest with you. I'm still suffering what you call a cultural trauma. It is a completely different world. Not just the language. Not the clothes, not the food, not the smell, but the entire way of thinking, the way of addressing things, and the way of living. So, yeah, but I love it. I must say, I absolutely love it. But it's a long way from Wick. It's a very long way. It's a it's a reasonable flight price as well to go back and forward as well. But listen, like you say, it's a beautiful scenery. If you're watching it on YouTube, you can see a stunning backdrop as well on there. Um, Indeed. You've mentioned that you've you've done these two interviews now, and also an appearance on Ancient Aliens, which is a, a hell of a way to get into talking about UFOs for your, your first kind of big appearance as well. <laughs> can, can I just jump in and ask, uh, well, do, do you remember the episode in the season? Because I'd love to yes. go watch that. Of course. Let me tell you what happened to you guys. So, like everybody, 15 years ago when this phenomenon, Ancient Aliens, appeared, I was riveted. I didn't buy it, but I just love story, okay? So... All my life, I knew if I go and appear in Ancient Aliens, I'll never work in a history show again. And that's the truth. Do you know when I do a contract to present a history series, I'm sometimes asked if I've ever appeared in a paranormal or a UFO-based show because it's a danger sign for lots of the networks. So, But listen to this. I got to about 42 years old. And I got, you know, when you well, you might not know yet, guys, but when you get there, you get an awful lot of, you stop caring about a lot of stuff, right? And I got this call one Christmas from a guy called Kevin Burns, the EP, the guy who designed Ancient Aliens. He calls my agent and said, look, season 13, I think it was season 13, we're doing an episode called Alien Discs. So 10 years prior to that, I had filmed an exploration looking for what's known as the Inca's Golden Sun Disc, an enormous lost disc of gold that was lost in the mountains of Peru. So they associated me with the Golden Sun Disc and they phoned in the, the agent and said, right, make Ash an offer. What we want to do, fly him to LA, film for three days, we'll put him up, cover his costs, we'll put him home and he'll be back in Colombia by the end of the week. And they offered me a fee. And I said to my agent, I said, there's absolutely no way that we're going to do this. Stuff it. I am not going to. So then... They came back about 50 minutes later and says, Ash, that's the day rate, and you're there for three days. And I said, get me into the Beverly Hilton tomorrow. <laughs> that is how cheap I am, boys. <laughs> and I did. I had the best experience of my life. Off I went to LA, knocked into a hotel, picked up in the big car, and I was driven the next day to a studio set in the Hollywood Hills. 
And it was this big old house that was all rigged up and the set was there. And I'll be honest, the guys in that production team at not one moment in that day, six hours of down the barrel interviewing, never was I made to say anything. Never was I asked about anything ridiculous. They really did say, we want to speak to you about archaeology. So, of course, I go and do that. I just loved the day. It was such a mannerly team, super wonderful environment to work in, hearing all these guys who have filmed with so many people in this world. And I got delivered back to the airport. I came home and we had a great Christmas. And I thought, if somebody judges me for having gone and done that, then let them do it. I'll be fine. And I had a great time. And I'm on season 13, I think, called Alien Discs. Can I just ask, how did it come across in the editing process? Now, you're there for three days. I'm guessing you recorded for quite some time, but in what, a 45-minute episode? You must have appeared for a couple of minutes. It's a great thing. Now, here's what happens is I was there for three days, so what I do is you fly from Columbia and you arrive on your day, and they give you a whole day in LA yourself. You've got your hotel room. They need you to be relaxed on TV, so they pay you a day early. You get there. You go and do your thing, you go to bed, and the car picks you up early the next day. Now, you're filming. I film for six hours, three hours in the morning, three hours after lunch. That came down to two and a half minutes I was on the episode. Six hours down the lens, talking about the history of Peru from 4000 BC, from when they first made gold, to the entire arrival up to the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century and the loss of the disc. I was in, you know, something they could have made an entire archaeology show from the interview. But what they did, of course, to tell their story was they used all the bits with me maybe saying something that was generic that could, but do you know what was really good was, and this was in my contract, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, don't care, was this. My, my agent, Kerry Ruddle, shout outs to Kerry, did this, where In the interview, they weren't allowed to ask me anything about aliens. I wasn't to be asked about aliens because the danger is this. Not that they did it, they wouldn't do it, but this is what you can do. So if I was interviewing myself, no, let me interview Andy. So I'm interviewing Andy and I go, so um, do you like ice cream? And your answer is yes. Okay, five minutes later, I ask you the question, do you believe in Pleiadian cultures visiting planet Earth, maybe crashed at Roswell, and you're going to go, absolutely not, crazy? You frankenbite in the yes from the start. Before you know it, you're speaking and answering yeah. to things. They didn't do it, not a piece, nothing. That's, you know what they did good. do, which is a bit of a letdown, is this was out of the six hours, I made what is arguably maybe a mistake. I said something that if I had, if I got a chance to say it again another way, I would have. They used that piece. That was one of the two and a half minutes they used. Right? Of course so it was. was. Yeah. Of course it was. And that's the only bit that the tossers who are out there reviewing you pick up on, right? So, so listen, that, that's pretty cool to hear. And it's good to know that it's a professional organization, the way it's run. And you would expect that. It's a big production. And as much as mm-hmm. it's maybe become a parody of itself over the years, yeah. I'm hoping... Um, this new series starts on the 7th of January and Ryan mm. Sprigg has just announced that uh, he's going to be in it, which is nice to hear oh, a, a fresh voice and a fresh face and amongst yeah. a lot of what tends to be the same people peddling the same books for, for many years, like you mentioned before, with uh, <laughs> selling books and things like that as well. No, you just make me think there. I can't. So the, here's the thing we talked before the show about sustainability, right, and podcasting. But in the world of TV, especially in America, to, to have, I've had three one episode, first seasons, right? To get a second season, 
or a third season is unheard of. To be up at 13 in season 14, it's, you know, here's the thing that you don't get when you get reviews in Ancient Aliens is there's probably a team of 40 to 60 people who have now had a life, a career, yeah. savings for the future, family networks, they've done their own wee businesses, they're and it's all come out of that guy Kevin Burns' concept, which was, it doesn't matter what you think of it, it's TV. If you're wanting hardcore physics and science, go listen to DeGrasse Tyson or read a book. Don't watch Ancient Aliens and complain. And I just think that um, for it to have survived 13 seasons and now moving into whatever it is, it's really, really something. And what it does is it just shows that there is an enormous thirst for this subject beyond what we think. And that's a really good sort of piece of proof for it. It's unheard of, unheard of. Uh, a credit to Giorgio as well. I don't know if you saw Resident Alien last year. Um, no. That was an excellent show, and they folded in the the uh, Tic Tac footage um, as oh. the first sighting of the UFO, the crashes, and then the show is just about an alien trying to live as a human and kind of hide. Um, and Giorgio informed a lot of the research for that show and he kind of had a little fun with it and made a, a bit of a parody of himself and, and you know good sport I, I saw that and just thought yeah genuine guy fair it's enough not, yeah it's funny it's not like Giorgio to make a parody of himself is it <laughs> <laughs> do you know what but, <clears throat> I think what you've talked about there though with ancient aliens being on one end of the spectrum and on the other your your Neil deGrasse Tyson's Brian Cox's and your really uh, hardcore scientists what we're kind of looking for to come out of where we're at now is maybe a documentary that sits slap bang in the middle of that um that could go to the mainstream and be big and not be something people watch for a bit of fun or tongue-in-cheek but they really watch to to catch themselves up on an incredible subject off the uh, back of that though Ash I want to know we started talking on on Instagram under your UAP Columbia username and mm-hmm. there's an aspect of anonymity there. Now, mm-hmm. given you've said, what, four years ago now, you were mm-hmm. on Ancient Aliens, you've not chosen to capitalise on that in any way. And not necessarily to make money, but just have a platform and have your name. You chose to do that and then stay online with an interest in the subject, but without your real name. Is that because of the still-attached stigma that you talked about and being attached to the UFO subject? I'm going to give you an answer here without blinking so you know it's the truth and the reason I did nothing after Ancient Aliens and only started doing stuff in the last six weeks is this on the year before coronavirus so leading into the middle of 2019 I got diagnosed with a really bizarre facial condition all right my only tool is my mouth And then on the month that coronavirus happened, when all the hospitals got closed down, I got told, and this is two years ago, you need an operation now, but there's no hospitals open. So through coronavirus, this condition I had spread. And as weird as and bizarre as this sounds to go off the subject, I got an operation 16 months ago, and I couldn't physically speak for nine months and two weeks. Couldn't talk. I had to relearn how to talk after the operation. And six weeks ago, after two and a half years, I phoned Vinny and said, we're good to go, my boy. That's why I did nothing. I had a complete upside down diabetic complication that took three years away from my life. And I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to put myself in front of a camera. I didn't want to be filmed. I didn't want to be the center of any form of attention when I was unable to speak. Now, here's the trouble with something like this. 
everybody goes through medical things from time to time in their life. But I had only just started to learn Spanish, so I'm in a country where I was struggling to communicate anyway. And then someone goes, now this is getting taken away from me. So that is time for me to shut up. That's the truth. My life went on a hold. It's not that I didn't want to capitalize on ancient aliens. I wouldn't have capitalized on an alien platform anyway because I'm so ingrained in archaeology and adventure and all these things. But that's the truth, Andy. I had a complete... Um, flip upside down and I'm only six weeks you'll even hear now I still have a kind of a, it's like I've had four or five still as you know well yeah, congratulations yeah thank you and uh, I'll make sure you get to do plenty of talking on this anyway as, this is usually <laughs> my style but I think you've got that time to catch up on now you've, you've got a it's one of those really unfortunate things that you've had something that's taken away from from what you do as a, a career as well and, and, and mm-hmm. pro- prohibited that uh, and stopped it for a while and obviously that's kicking back off what initially drew you to a career as a documentary filmmaker and, and tv presenter the, this i was from wick in the northeast coast of scotland right so i'm we were 120 miles from the closest cinema being brought up so you have two op- you have three options you've got you've got girls joints or fishing so i did all three and I came out the other side. I came out the side as a fisherman, right? So I spent a lot of my twenties in the hills in Caithness, surrounded by castles, brochs, cairns, burial chambers, and we were always exploring around these things. But um, I went off to Glasgow and studied filmmaking and photography in my, in my sort of mid twenties, and I, you know, that kind of stuck. And I went back north, travelled all around Scotland, doing various kind of jobs to survive. But in my Mid thirties, all kind of landed. I started. Um, I started appearing as the, a resident historian. I'd spent ten, fifteen years researching history, finding things, working with universities, field walking in Caithness, and getting some real hands-on experience with the way Scottish history worked. And lo and behold, I became the resident historian with you know Michelle McManus. Michelle McManus used to host the Hour Show on STV, so I was the resident historian there. I met her in the, I met her in them. This is how I got that job. I'd for 10 years been trying to get myself into TV with no way of breaking the door through. I mean, really difficult. And I was in Carter's, a pub in Shawlands in Glasgow one night in my thirties and met Michelle McManus and we got trashed together and I was on TV the next Monday. And of course, and that I'd be straight up. She's got a shout out to Michelle. I just did her podcast there a couple of years ago. And we, we, so anyway, here we are, and I'm on live TV, and I did it for 10 weeks in a row, presenting the history of festivals and Scottish traditions and why we celebrate this and eat this, you know, the, the, the sort of rituals associated with holidays. And then from there, it just seemed to go slow. I, I then from there went on to the show about Rosalind Chapel. I wrote a book about Rosalind Chapel and ended up doing a PBS documentary, right? This is terrible. And I got paid... 275 quid for that interview and it was the 16th most downloaded documentary in amazon on 216 <laughs> 200 quid after tax that, that is worthy of being on a plaque i think yeah <laughs> i know totally but i'll tell you the great thing is i'm now after this is really funny now after nine 12 years i'm making a film with that same guy who paid me 200 quid how good is that we've gone right back around full circle 
Nice. So look, so I started getting into filming then, and then I started doing my own Facebook and YouTube things and all these things. But then 10 years ago, I was in Glasgow, miserable, doing a job I hated, in a relationship that made me just do her. And I got a phone call from this random number in Los Angeles from this really, really camp guy. And he's like, hey, my name's Tony. Shout out to Tony Miros. This agent in LA had been approached by a producer saying, we're looking for an archaeologist come symbologist. It was just after the Da Vinci Code wave. So I got the call and said, we're looking, they're looking for an archaeologist symbologist. And I'm like, that's really funny. That's what I'm an archaeologist, archaeologist symbologist, funnily enough. And I was working at this job in Arbroath, based in Glasgow, working in Arbroath. And they said, so we need you to come out and cast for this show. And this is the most bizarre thing. This is the full-on LA guy looking to, talking about all the show stuff. No longer was it television or the telly, it was shows. So, off I, so, so he goes, right, the thing is this. We need to film you in Costa Rica and do a taster reel to show the network. We've got six other people that they're thinking about. And like, this is fine send me some dates. And he went, right, Ash, this is on the Wednesday night. He said, we need you in Costa Rica Friday. And I was thinking to myself, look, this is like, oh my goodness. So anyway, I told the boss in our booth, had, I was ill and I got on a plane in Glasgow and I was in Costa Rica on a Sunday morning and I filmed for the whole day Sunday for this show called Legend Quest. <clears throat> and everybody flew out on the Monday and I was to be back at work that next Wednesday and we were digging about in this cave for this shoot. And I had a, must have had a ragnail. And that night, I came down with septicemia blood poisoning in this hotel in a jungle in Costa Rica. And I was thinking, I'm going to, I'm meant to be at home and I'm meant to be ill in a flat in Glasgow just now. And, and so, anyway, here I was in Costa Rica and I flew back home. I got home the next week with this. I'd lost about four stone. I was in just in this terrible way. And I got a call two weeks later, bluffed at work from the producer, and went nuts. Nah, this other guy has got it, this ex-stand-up comedian guy. I was absolutely heartbroken, and it was gone. It was going to make me rich. It was going to make me famous. All the things that are important in your early 30s, right? And then 10 days passed, and we got a call. The guy got married. His wife wouldn't let him do the show, and I got the job. <laughs> and um, off I went. I went, right, you know, six weeks later from working in Glasgow, I went to 24 countries over four months and filmed in over 80 sacred sites, archaeological sites, all the famous places around the world, searching for ancient artifacts, following legends, looking for everything from the Holy Grail to the Ark of the Covenant, which makes me draw breath now. It was actually, I was actually safer in ancient aliens than I was look, looking back, thinking I was looking for the Holy Grail, right? <laughs> But I th So I got into it there with Legend Quest, but here we go. I remember Kinga Phillips, my co-host, saying to me, and it haunts me to the day, she goes, Ash, there's nowhere to go. I went, what do you mean? And she goes, people work in this industry their whole career to get their show. And here I was at 32, just having had a major one on sci-fi and then around the world on universal networks. It went to 140 countries. It was in different languages, this crazy show, Legend Quest. And from there, I just started doing lots and lots of different films and making my own films and selling them and doing independent films. And laterally, in the last four years, Josh Gates from Expedition Unknown 
has kind of had me do a few episodes, a couple of episodes with him. You know, we were treasure hunting in Scotland four years ago, and that was one of the best rated shows he had. And there, lo and behold, three weeks ago, we just aired him. Season nine of Expedition Unknown and Discovery. I had Josh and his team in Elder Columbia. So in the summer, they came down here looking for the mythical city of gold, El Dorado, Josh and a crew of 40. And I was fortunate enough to have some part of the narrative of that story. And what I was able to do was get Josh to come along and meet my friends in this indigenous community in Sesquile, who are the guardians of Guatavita, the keepers of the secrets of El Dorado. And rather than having Josh and myself hiking near with the machetes and all the dramatic stuff looking for gold, it was explained to him that El Dorado was the Umbre El Dorado, the golden man, and it related to a coronation ceremony. And it was just kind of a game of telephone, the telephone game where what started as the golden man who was a king with gold dust who jumped into a lagoon, it expanded then to, you know, a city, a lost city of gold. So that was great. We were able to get right to the core of the El Dorado myth with Josh in that episode, and it went out on mainstream discovery. So it paid a wage, it paid a bill for a few months, and it had a kind of whole different perspective on this idea that there's gold lost in the forests here. Well, there is. El Dorado is something completely different. So there you go. That's a kind of overview of documentaries and stuff, yeah. I'm going to say that I would put money on Dan being extremely jealous right now of of some of those expeditions you've managed I mean, to be it, on. It sounds like the life of uh, Indiana Jones in the modern day, you know? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something to put a wee blunt. I'm going to blunt the, the dull the diamond here. I just said it to someone last week. I got a shudder recently, and it's because of this. You, if, like, where were we? Let me give you an example. We're in Chart Cathedral in France, one of the most incredible i know i could name somewhere more tropical but just here we go i'm in this most blindingly awesome awesome cathedral right so i walk into the cathedral it's the arrival shot gotta remember this is sci-fi this is a holy american crew this is what happened i went around the world to all these amazing places but i walked into chart and i remember saying this building is 800 years old of heritage and history. We must look beyond the myths and beyond the religion that overwhelms it today. We must look for the fingerprints of the masons who carved this most exemplary structure of masonry. Cut. Hey, Ash, back to one. Gonna walk in and just go, Kinga, this is awesome. <laughs> that happened a lot. Nice. And I realized that I did this cultural tour of some of the most awesome sights in the world but a they were behind me and i was looking down a camera and then out next and b i had to present an exceptionally what will we call it an exceptionally dramatic interpretation of places that needed something different so i was quite at conflicts with that show so, but guess what dan you'd rather have done it and not as a fact yeah absolutely you know some, someone's <laughs> gonna do it and you, you know you can influence it yourself and, and make it better than it would have been you know so i tell you where these things help where traveling helps is this and it's amazing is the corona thing it's been said if you've been to over 10 12 international airports in your life your immune system's been exposed to pretty much everything that's going to get you and i'll tell you now um my partner had corona my parents-in-law had corona 
I did, I've not had as much as a sniffly nose of one of the, I've been and I've been exposed to it. So I do believe there's something to be said for being in different countries. And I think that says a lot for how dangerous a lockdown is, where it's probably the opposite we need. Folks, we're going to take a very quick break just to support some of our sponsors. If you're on Apple Premium, Spotify Premium or Patreon, you won't hear any ads. Otherwise, stick around. We'll be right back in one minute. Fair enough. <clears throat> and listen, um, I'm going to give you the option here, Ash. <clears throat> we have mm. two ways to go now and we're going to cover both anyway. Would you, as the guest, like to cover the historical cases first in Colombia or do you want to s- discuss phenomenology? As a, a start, I would like point. to. I think because it's it's like I'm already really conscious. I hate this. Is that it's a that UFO podcast, and all we've heard is me drone on about me. There's seven and a half billion other people like me, so I would far rather get a break from me. Talk about classic UFO cases. You know, there's things. I think because the last line on your intro there before you start speaking is this isn't an American phenomenon. It's worldwide. I think it's a great chance for me to share maybe two or three really famous cases in Colombia and South America that no one's going to have heard before that have tie-ins and correlations with famous people, names and things in North America. That's going to maybe juice up some of your your listeners to go and research some new stories. It's That's fine. It's something I've been guilty of is focusing on a lot of the here and now. I mean, that's a big part of the podcast, but I've really meant to. And in 2022, we will be going back and looking at other cases, especially from other parts of the world as well. Now, mm-hmm. South America itself as a continent is a hotbed for UFO activity. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of lore over the years. We spoke to Undead Gaucho on his channel, uh, from his channel last year, over about sightings in Argentina. Um, UFOs or OVNI is a pronunciation in, in South America and the languages, is that right? It's Objecto Volador No Identificado, which is just object flying not identified, OVNI. See? Awesome, I like that. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think OVNI, UFOs, seem mm-hmm. to be more culturally accepted in South America than they are in North America or other parts of the world? Okay. There was a paper written by two two Colombian scientists based in Bristol University. We can maybe Google this and get the link for the show notes. Recently published called The Chilean UFO Myth Machine, I believe is the title. I'll send it to you. These two girls looked, or the two scientists looked at what, just this. Why is there a susceptibility? in Chile more so than even in South America. And one of the the interesting observations that rose from their paper was that you have a nation that's over 90% Catholic. So 90% of the people here believe in spiritual entities, gods, greater beings than themselves. There's a predisposition to what you would call non-material thinking there's a huge jam and a mashup between ufology and religion in colombia just now we have religious cults so not only are people liable to believe in ufos but they're liable to believe in other people that believe in ufos 1982 100 people went vanished 
up in our Sierra Nevada following a UFO cult leader who told them the mothership was coming back for them. You can Google this. This is famous. So these hundred people vanished in the mountains, perished. And it turns out that the UFO, the ufologist, the cult leader, had taken all of their homes, their savings, their insurance portfolios, the lot. So there's a real susceptibility to, for people to believe in the supernatural here. And I think it is because of that religious doctrination that anything is possible. You know, to believe in a God or to believe in anything else, there's no sort of empiric, empirical evidence for it. You've got to be open for a leap of faith. And I think it's that people here have got this absolute willingness to take that leap of faith where people from our, our culture are much more terrified to do to do that. And, and does and, that um, translate to the, the, um, the media as well in South America and Colombia? Yeah, there's a real interesting thing here where at the moment, I, you know, one of our platforms, my platform is UAP Colombia. Nobody has a clue what this UAP is. There isn't a UAP here. It's still the OVNI and only the OVNI. They have lost phenomenos, which are the phenomenon. So everything that's unexplainable, they put into the, the phenomenon bracket, but it's either UFO or not UFO. There is, and they are always alien. It's never. It's always, and here you go, LTM, LPIs, all of the headlines, it's all OVNI. And it's it's never, do they exist? Is this evidence? Is this proof? It's always more evidence, another layer. Here's another thing. The, the country's in real need of a solid, what you would call a public-facing skeptic, I think, because there's this wholesome belief in UFOs being from other planets. And I personally think that maybe to be so conclusive is cl keep closing doors and other possibilities. And do, do the people, are they happy with where they're at, with their understanding of the phenomenon and that they think it's always more evidence or is there a push for, for more of a confirmation of what they believe? Yeah, there's this drive just now here, like there is all over the world for governments to start releasing documentation, to start releasing findings. But, you know, we can cover a couple of cases here. But what's really interesting in Colombia is Colombia represents North America's strongest military ally in South America. So the American Navy and the Colombian Navy do joint exercises along there in the Caribbean and the Pacific coasts. Now, I'm going to show you some examples of this, but advanced drone technology from North American Navy has been tested here for at least 20 years. In, it's called Plan Columbia. Back in 2000, President Bill Clinton signed off Plan Columbia, and this was an effort to fund Columbia to train the military and the paramilitaries to try and cease cocaine growth. Not so much production, but just actually stop the plant growth. So at that time... Northrop Grumman, all the big US military producers were flying some seriously advanced drones across Colombian airspace because it's easier to fly a drone across a jungle in Colombia than it is to fly over a block of houses or indeed off in an army training ground off California. They get spotted too often. However, Colombia is ingrained with this whole sort of drive for, you know, disclosure, they call it. So here, Last week, a famous actor, um, not two weeks ago it was, his name was 
Escolar, his surname leaves me. He's like um, a Bernie Winters of Colombian comedy here, right? This okay. sort of classic guy. So I don't know if you saw it on the internet. It, it went viral on UFO Twitter. He posted a picture of a UFO at Bogota Airport. Mm-hmm. So I sent that to Mick Weston. He had had it from about 100 different people before I sent it to him. And within hours, he had a video there explaining, showing that eight frames in this was quite clearly, call it a Moscow here, a fly. And, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to work out that it was a fly in this case. So I sent this to the actor in Columbia, and he wasn't too impressed with this, all right, through UAP Columbia. And then a week later, just there a few days ago, he goes and publishes the same video again. Mr. West, you missed something. Lo and behold, there's another flying object at the top of that very film, which is quite clearly another fly. But to him, it's like, you know, the skeptics missed this. They're so stupid. They couldn't even see this. Damn, two UFOs. Everyone here is on the streets with flags because it's more UFOs. They don't see flies here. I'm going to tell you, I keep, I just get shocked. Like UAP Columbia, 7,000 followers, I think, on the Instagram channel. If I post a picture, for if somebody said, we get lots and lots of sighting centers, so I do a quick video analysis, you do a breakdown and post what it is. If I frame the suggestion, the video, the film, the response to this a video as, what do you think this is? I'm going to get a ton of people delighted, all interacting, telling me, this is the Nazi bell, quite clearly interdimensional, <laughs> Pleiades, right? If I say... <clears throat> this is quite clearly a large marketing balloon that got released from Medellin Football Stadium. I lose 75 followers that day. So it's really it's a real juxtaposition. It's like what you're trying to do with UAP is what you said there. It's this middle place now. It's where there's two factions, right? This is almost like American politics where you've got your believers and your non-believers. And arguably just now the non-believers and the skeptics are angrier and more vicious than any of the believers in the UFO community, if you noticed that. But there's also something hilarious that's going on. Maybe you haven't seen this from the inside, but it's clear to me. What has developed in the online UFO community is that you are, you represent the hardest core group of UFO skeptics on the planet. There's no bigger a skeptic nowadays in the UFO phenomenon. All you've got to do is put a photograph or a video of what you say is a UFO and UFO Twitter. You're going to get yourself toward a new backside tomorrow, right? No one's having it. Yeah. No one's having the tic-tac. So it's, it's, there's, there's this really, really interesting group of folk that are all demanding more than even UFOs from within ufology. The assumption is that there aren't UFOs anymore. There's almost a call out for something much, much greater than that, as in the unidentified thing really, really needs solving. Now, and what you know happened in the last 24 hours, I think it was you that told it to the world first. And, you know, Joe Biden signed off this new, this new sort of historical document that you're just out on an island if you dare say that there's that nothing exists. If you dare say... This is all bags, balloons, glare, phosphine clouds inside your brain from light that didn't actually come through your eye. These are all really problematic now because you've got the biggest, most powerful people in the world all saying there is a thing, there's a thing, because it's 
they think it's a thing, right? It's, it's things that people are talking about, and that's what people see here is things. They don't see just lights here. They see discs, and they describe all sorts of things. So Colombia is going through this sort of incredible place just now where it's getting nothing from the government because it's all American secrets, you know. There's n- the government here don't even have a system for pilots reporting UFO phenomenon. That actually would be an amazing place for me to tell you the first story about yeah, let's, let's get into it. Let me, yeah. let, let me tell you, I'm going to back. I was going to go back to the '60s to begin this, and so you know what you're not going to see in any of these stories. You can ask me anytime you want my own personal opinion. That's not going to come into. It. I'm going to give you the facts: what happened, what's been reported, and where you can go. Right. So just in February 2020, okay. So we're only talking less than two years ago. Maria Alvarez is a 64-year-old retired captain from the Colombian Air Force. She picks up the phone after serving 30 years and extended service in audiophonics in the, in the Air Force. She phones LTM newspaper and said, I need to report something bizarre that happened to me last night. Uh, Colombian filmmaker Roberto Gavain drove to her house in Tenho, which is Five miles that way, Dan. We'll go back to that. Five miles from where I'm sitting just now, this occurred. The filmmaker turned up for the TV channel, switched his recorder on, and she was standing in her field outside her farmhouse, just down the valley. This is what she said. She said, I was sleeping last night. I I put my pajamas on at 9.30. I go to bed at 10. I was sleeping. My door got knocked at 10.45. My chief farmer said, Senora, Senora, there's a light in the garden. She said she put on her night robe, ran out into the garden. It's just recently. She said she looked up and saw nothing. But by that time, 13 of the farmers and their family had gathered in her garden and they were pointing at this mountain, La Peña de Huayca, behind me. And she said on camera, I watched a tic-tac oval-shaped UFO circling La Peña de Huayca for 21 minutes with 13 people. They were all interviewed. They all told of the tic-tac-shaped UFO circling La Peña de Huayca for 21 minutes. Then she said they were lying down Watch it, because when it passed overhead, she said it gave off an effervescence light, not like as if it was emitted from a street light, but rather as if it was trying to come out and going back in. She said it was a light within itself, di dentro. And she said that they all lay down, and when they went to stand up, it stopped about 100 metres above their house. It dulled, and they said it vanished into the air, straight vertical. 13 people plus her was the last time a Colombian Air Force captain came forward and did something like this. But this is remarkable. It's not a five-second flash in the dark. She only did the one interview. She won't even reply to me when I ask her for an interview for UAP Colombia. She did it, got it out of the way, and that's it. But it's, isn't that just quite something that we would have the same visual 
report from a pilot of a this tic-tac oval-shaped UFO that seems to be so... Now, here you go. I'm a filmmaker photographer, and I'm going to... I know a lot of your people are going to pull their hair out when I say this, and they're not going to like me, and they might even switch off. And for fun, show people here how to make tic-tac UFOs with camera focus. A photograph, La Peña de Huayca in focus, when we see a helicopter going over it. And what I do, I'll show Natty this morning, is focus on La Peña de Huayca, Take the shot to focus on the helicopter, take the shot, the mountain's out of focus. Focus on the mountain, and the helicopter turns into a tic tac. It's incredible. It's not as good as you do with a plane. So I know how I know how the dynamics of cameras can be f- falsified, how things can be misinterpreted if the focal range is wrong and whatnot. But this isn't to do with the camera. This is they saw something in the sky surrounding this mountain that's here, which isn't unusual. It's the center of lots and lots of phenomena, as we'll come back to. However, that's a really recent UFO report from Colombia, from a, what you would call a, I don't know if, you know, we should say military eyewitnesses are better than public eyewitnesses. I don't know if I go with that because we all have the same eyes. And, you know, David Fravor has never been taught how to identify a UFO. Neither has my next door neighbor, you know. So I don't know if they're better, but what they are is, they're probably more considered because they've spent a career where they're, what they see is quite critical to other people's lives. You know, did I see that or didn't I? Was that a tank or wasn't it a tank? It's, so when, it, when I heard her and when you see her, she's great. And she just comes across this really flirty thing. And all of her farmers, they all tell people around town about the light. They all call it the light. But she claims it was the solid object that was giving out awful light. So yeah, there you go. Now, fascinating case, and I love I love hearing any sort of eyewitness testimony, especially when mm-hmm. you have what a total of fourteen people, thirteen mm-hmm. plus the the captain herself. Twenty one mm-hmm. minute long incident in in twenty nineteen twenty twenty. Did none of them have a camera phone? Which I know will be the first thing people are thinking themselves. Did no one film it or take a picture of the incident? Um, or is that not something they have? No. Um, so Natty, my wife, thinks that this is the reason that she's not replied to me because I just said, I said, could you send me some footage? Surely one of you had to, to get the camera out. And I said, I'd love to see it and review it. And I pushed and I said things like, while it's bound to be dark and maybe a bit out of focus, we could really do wonders with that. And she's just in. I needed, I thought to myself, this is the one weakness in the whole thing. However, Here's my suspicions, all right? Not that I know, but we do know that three weeks ago, the Colombian military and the American Navy, not it's the Colombian Navy and the American Navy FARC, they announced this really, really state-of-the-art drone that's been getting tested here for two years, and it's called Art Kimbaja. It's a five-meter drone. And the thing has some kind of paint on it, and some kind of effervescent wave, so when it's filmed, it, appear, it can distort its shape, like the bluebird, the, 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 these um, stealth bombers. So I wonder if they saw some kind, this drone possibly being tested. But then, you know, here's the thing. And we don't want to start talking about the coming documentary, but I've got to note this, Dan, we'll come back to this, it's, the, what we need to do with this is 
we know where she said it circled around the mountain, okay? We know exactly where she said the extent was. Actually, she clay over the top of our house right here as it's doing its rotundo. I reckon if she said they saw it for 21 minutes and they claimed it passed between 16 and 20 times, we could do, we could calculate how fast it was going with how many times it was seen on this route over 21 minutes. But we're going to do that together then, as we'll discuss in a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. You, you could. There's enough information there that you could ease that out of it and, um, and you know, at least be able to label it as, oh, this is one of the observables. Or uh, on the balance of probability, this might be a bit prosaic, you know? Exactly. Well, we know the the, UF, the the Air Force announced that Arkham Badger can go up, I think it's 200 kilometers an hour, 165 is this, uh, whatever cruising altitude, but can go to 200. So we would know a bandwidth to compare. And if that maybe fell in there. However, what you've got too, though, is um, it's sustained. And here's the thing. This location is three miles from El Dorado Airport. You know, so why would you really have military drones flying, testing, you know, drones being tested of a habit of falling out of the sky? Would you really be doing all that beside the airport? That was one of the things that the, the, the guy said was that it was on Massajar. Massajar is this big mainstream network UFO channel out here. It's on every week. You guys have got stupid baking and dancing programs. We've got proper hardcore UFO shows <laughs> here. So this one, Massajah, um, talks about this site and, and they have the farmers in and they interview them. Um, um, but you know what, the, what? what's really quite crazy about it is they're all really, really insistent that it stopped above them before it vanished, you know, and I think that's quite spooky because even if it's, let's just say it's a military drone, the thought that we live in a world where there's some geek in some tunnel a kilometre per grow ground flying something above folk and having a look and stopping and going away. I think I'd rather they were from Alpha Centuri. <laughs> Do you know what? And we kind of touched on it just before, Ash, that whether the footage was really dark, a little pinpoint in the sky, in which case everyone just dismisses it as you can't see anything. Same, I, I've talked about the black triangle I saw back in December 2019. Even if I did take my phone out while driving at 70 miles an hour on a very narrow road and film mm-hmm. it, you wouldn't have seen what I could see with my eyes. You would have saw two tiny little points of light, no triangle, and just maybe some stars in the background, maybe through a car windscreen. So it would have been pointless footage anyway. But even on the other end of that scale, if it was stunning 4K, 8K footage of what looks to be a Tic Tac flying around there, people Mm -hmm. would claim it's too good to be true. So I don't Mm -hmm. think any members of the public sending in UFO footage to anywhere would be trekked with the seriousness it would probably deserve because mm-hmm. you're going to get either side of the scale of it's not good enough or it's too good so it must have been faked so it's almost 100%. better to have something that leaves you with that that vagueness and I think that's probably part of the reason those you know videos in 2017 were selected because they're they're boring enough from a military point of view to not break any confidentialities, any NDAs or anything top secret. Yeah. But they leave you with a lot of questions. And I think that's what a lot of people love about this subject. And yeah, it's unfortunate there's no other evidence, but like you say, there's a few things you've mentioned there that are quite interesting aspects of, of that. The the stories, this this is all about story. I'm a storyteller, filmmaker, author. It's story. And like, I don't, 
sometimes want to see the photos that make me then go, well, no, that's obviously a drone love. I'd rather this story with the mystery. Here's the thing, we're Scottish. The day that a scientist proves Nessie doesn't or hasn't or couldn't exist, our nation's tourist industry collapses the next day, right? Yeah. It's the mystery that keeps the imagination and the traditions and the heritage of people and nations alive. And it's not conclusions I'm looking for in any of this. I'm sharing some great stories from fascinating people too. It's not the fellow down the boozer. These are captains. The world and seems to love the captain or the UF or the naval UFO report, right? This is when I, I wrote an article in UEP Columbia about this and I called it, Hey, Dice Dreich, here's your Colombian sister. <laughs> because she's a female from the army who stepped forward, which has with it the same. I'll tell you now, not that I know much about her personally, but when, when Alex Dietrich came out last year, publicised it, what a brave, brave thing to do in such a sometimes acidic sort of environment. I thought that was really good. And this is what this lady did here too. She can put her, <laughs> she can put her balls in the line, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, I think Alex publicised enough some of the... The abuse or the the annoyance she got, and people getting her phone numbers, and just what comes yeah. along with that, and it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, active or you know just leaving the military or whatever. So it's always appreciated, and especially um, in the kind of atmospheres that we have now online. Mm-hmm. I think what's really important for everybody to see with the whole Alex thing is we don't need to be worshiping anyone. People, lots of people have seen things, but here's the thing: lots of people like. Um, Fravor, Commander David Fravor, has now gone public and he's pretty much said they, Tic Tac's 2004 incident, Nimitz, are not of this planet. He said that that's easier to say and to fly your flag than it is for what Alex Dietrich did to say, I don't know what I saw. There's not a politician in the world is brave enough to say, I don't know. Everyone's too quick to, to feel they should have an answer. She's put herself out there and saying she doesn't know what she saw, which can leave her open to be branded kooky, kooky, whatever. You know, I think that's the brave with it. She was able to say I experienced something without feeling the need to try and label it. Absolutely. It's a really good point. That's mm. that's a current incident. That's been uh, from the last couple of years. Let's go back to one of those incidents from the 60s. Um, again, yeah. Ash, you're choosing. What do you want to go into? I've got my notes in front of me here, and the reason I'm going to, and the re- I'm never going to, I'm going to tell you stories, but I think what's important at the beginning is that I get the date, the time, and the name of the people right, so people yeah, can please. go, your viewers can go and Google it then to see, because this is an hour mainstream thing, all, and the, all of this is great, because you can Google any of these names and just tap Google Translate, and you have the Spanish reports, so what I think I should do is, I'm going to go back to, um, so this is great. This is what I wanted to talk to you about. Project Blue Book, Alan J. Hynek's Project, Project Blue Book, which you're all aware of. Two cases in the 1,247 cases. Two were in Colombia. Would you believe it? They appear in Project Blue Book. I think I'm going to talk to you about those two cases because they're absolutely mental. Edit it out. They're absolutely bizarre. <laughs> I like that. I'll, yeah, I like that. I'll leave that one in. I like that. <laughs> yeah, people get touchy these days. So, look, I'm going to talk to you about what's known out here as the Anolima incident. The Anolima incident, or the incident of Asercio Bermudez. 
Acercia Bermudez is the victim. The Anolima incident is the name of the case. So, 4th of July, 1964. About 300 miles south of here in a much more tropical part of Colombia. There's a lot of thinkers, farmhouses. So a family of nine people left Bogota one Friday, led by Mauricio Neco. Mauricio Neco appeared in El Tiempo in May 2019, telling this story again after 50 years. This is the first of the Project Blue Book cases. They were in the farmhouse at 6.15 that night on the 4th of July. And one of the children ran in and said, there's a light. There's a light coming up the valley, Dad. Asercio Bermudez and his two nephews went into the garden and saw the light. Out comes Arcesio's wife, the torch. And he grabbed it and they flashed it up the valley at the light. The light started coming towards them. Two hours later, the, the light disappears. Two hours later, they went back out to check and see if this light that appeared to be coming towards them was anywhere to be seen and they couldn't see this anywhere in the garden. So Mauricio Neko's story has remained stable for 50 years and it goes like this. Myself and Asercio, my cousin, were in the garden and a large orange disc descended, two meters wide, one meter high, glowing orange. The girls started screaming and ran out from the house and all witnesses stood there and watched this light. They watched it rise and float over an orchard. Asercio ran through the orchard as his brother, his cousin Mauricio, told the kids to go back into the house. Mauricio Neco said he watched Asercio for four minutes standing underneath this object in the sky and he was standing with his hands open beside him, open, looking at this light. And while there was an orange glow on the disc, his brother Asercio was lit blue. It lasted for four minutes and the light vanished. They didn't see it again. Mauricio, in his, all of his statements, said the speed at which it vanished, he said, I am not seeing alien, I'm not seeing alien, he never has. He said it was science fiction. What The way the light vanished was science fiction. So this is what happens, and this is why it became a Project Blue Book case. That night, the family went into the house. They went crazy. They boarded up the house. They boarded up all the windows. This light terrified them. They didn't know what this was. The next morning, all the kids got out of bed, but Asercio didn't. Asercio was on this Thanks sofa. Thanks for listening to part one. He wasn't part very two well. will be out in just a couple shivering. of days' time, where we will hear and then the more next morning, Asercio was from quite definitely from Ashley Kiwi, and also on the third talk about morning, Asercio Bermudez died. Hoping to send Dan out to in Colombia called Phenomenology. Thanks for listening. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little brand.
awake, I'll start to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was wet, and I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and they think I should see therapy, and I don't know what it is, because it doesn't really scare me. Thank you.